Hey, everybody, I'm Bill. I'm an alcoholic. And I do have shorts on. Just want you to know that. And uh, what a day. I mean, what a day. I mean, I, I do a lot of these. A lot of us do. I do a lot of these. And it's kind of it takes stamina, you know. And today I jumped up. I just said, well, Kent's coming on. You know, I'll listen to Kent and then I'll, you know, I, ne- I never heard Amy. I don't know Amy. I'll just, you know, I'll go do, I'll go smoke a cigar or something, you know. And I've been here all day. All day. And uh, I got to say, Candace makes everybody feel like they're not doing it right. They're not doing enough. I mean, Candace is just like, geez, that's a woman you have to deal with. You know, it's like, <laughs> so is Leslie. She's jumping up and down. Leslie's a woman you have to deal with. You know, that's a definite, distinct personality there. And, uh, but what a, I love this format. I love the Woodstock thing because it gives all of us a chance to actually talk about the steps. So it forces you to actually learn something about it so that you can talk about it correctly, right? Makes you jump back in there. But the format is nice because we don't have to just tell the story. We can talk about sobriety, essentially. When you're talking about the steps, you're talking about sobriety. What's it like since I've been sober? I've been sober since March the 27th, 1985. Now, you may not be impressed by that, but it impresses the hell out of me. I mean, I just, you know, I'm 75 years old. Now, you can kind of get depressed about that. I choose the path of I made it. Because it wasn't looking real promising, you know, for a long time, you know. And so the attitude is everything, right? Well, talking about the steps, you'll notice everybody that talked today talked about the step. Everybody actually did it, right? And they talked, and the beauty of it, too, it's not so much the mechanics of it. It's about the actual life experience of it. And you've got some people here that have been sober a while. So what the principle of a given step might have meant to them when they were new is different than the principle they see it now at 25 or 30 or 35 years sober. I think that's a fascinating story. You know, I've been sober a lot longer than I got loaded. I got loaded for 20, 22 years, 22 years, something like that, pretty, pretty significantly. Mental institution, jails and stuff, you know, pretty significantly. You know, and, and Ralph was talking about working girls. What were they doing? Like landscape design? Is that it? Like, you know, planting things and, but I've been sober a lot longer. So the, the whole, the whole story of being sober is a lot more interesting. It's because it, I've been awake for most of it. You know, the, the story is relatively accurate because I, I was actually there and unmedicated. So I can talk to you about. The other thing that we heard today, and what I love about AA in general, is there's an immense amount of wisdom in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, real, real wisdom. And what wisdom is to me is experience, number one, experience, combined with enough intellect to be able to express the experience. So what you get when you hang out with a bunch of speaker people is you get a lot of that. You know, I mean, the real zealots, the people that really believe it and they really live it, you know, some of the fun about going around to conferences is hanging out with the other speakers 
because they're just as wacky about it as you are, you know, and it's like competition for who's the biggest zealot in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love being around that energy. And it's not just speaker people, but those people have a tendency to really be, they, they have to have fearless enough to get up in front of a bunch of people and talk about what they think about sobriety, you know, and, and you get a lot of wisdom from that. One-on-one, we all have wisdom like that to share. You don't have to be a speaker. You know, so you're sitting with somebody outside of the clubhouse at 9604, and you see somebody you don't recognize, and you go, what's a nice guy like you doing in a place like that? And you have a little five- or ten-minute conversation. And what can happen is we love attention. All of us love attention. Whether we're introverts or extroverts, we love attention. But there's a lot of us that can't reach out and ask for that. And I think it's up to us that have been around a while to do the reaching out. To be, we know what's going on around here. I can look at somebody, if I'm paying attention, I can tell there's somebody sitting over there wishing somebody would come up and say something to them. And they don't know how to do it. And you just walk up and just say something stupid, make them laugh, you know. You don't have to lay any heavy stuff on them. Just like, how are you doing? Are you going to kill yourself today? Because <laughs> it could be. I mean, Pat O's story about, you know, I'm getting ready to do it, but would you mind meeting me at the meeting first, you know, before you kill yourself so I can say goodbye? And and he, like the brilliant guy that he is, went, oh, yeah, okay, sure. It's, <laughs> you know, saved a life. I think we save lives around here often, frequently, you know. So one of the things that really touched me is I took some notes listening to the speakers today, and I just want to quickly go through it. I love Polypistol. Who, who doesn't love Polypistol? People that have never met her love Polypistol. She just exudes love. And her and Kent both talked about how much they love Alcoholics Anonymous. They both talked about when they first walked in, they got it right away. Now, I go around saying one of the lucky things that happened to me when I got to AA is I walked in and I just liked it. And that's not everybody's story. But those two talked about how just they walked in and, yeah, this is maybe bad attitude and stuff. And the behavior wasn't that great, but I liked this. And I think it was Kent or both of them that went to like 20 meetings a day. You know, maybe they didn't do much else, but I mean, they just love the energy of the room. And that's my story. I walked into AA and I just liked it. I got the joke right away. And I left that first night. I walked into the gong show at the Hermosa Beach Alano Club. And it was, people were dressed up trying to hook up. You know, I mean, this is not, people said a lot of, people said it wasn't an AA meeting. I went to it for 20 years because it made me laugh. I got the joke. And if you laugh around here, that's how you catch alcoholism because they don't get this kind of humor down at the Kiwanis Club. You know, I mean, this is uh, this is something else. We laugh at the tragedies and cry at the successes. And that's a very real thing. The other thing that AA does really well is AA, if you let it, it will help you laugh at who you think you are. Not who you are. But the persona that you put on when you walk in to meet us, because everybody has one, and, and AA will help you laugh at that, of who are you trying to be, you know? 
Like there's one of the saddest things that you'll see is somebody trying to be cool in of all places, AA. I mean, you got to lame up to get Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? I mean, this is, <laughs> anyway. Leslie said something, um, and I, I, I love Leslie. And uh, Leslie said, this is where life happens in AA. She talked about, all everybody kind of talked about growing up in AA, all these realizations that we have. It doesn't come right away. You don't work a step and all of a sudden the light comes on and your behavior changes. Everybody gets to wear the clown suit around here. Everybody does dumbass stuff. Everybody. Everybody, everybody that's here that's been here just a few years will look back and go, oh, geez, I, let me tell you about what happened to me last week. You know, what I said to somebody, what I did to somebody. Now, here, and this is where life happens. And the way we learn, the way we grow up here is through experience, not through intellectual understanding. We're not stupid. I can get certain concepts. That doesn't mean I apply any of them ever. I have no, there's no filter here. I don't have the pause when agitated. I just react and my reaction then becomes a problem. I'm seven, eight years sober. I got escorted off a soccer field full of nine-year-olds for going after the referee, right? It seemed important at the time, right? And when they're escorting you off the field, and you know as you're walking on, because I'm not a newcomer. I've been around a little bit. I'm sponsoring people. I'm speaking around. I'm a guru, right? I'm, I'm, I'm fast becoming a guru. And so so I'm not like a year sober. I'm, I'm seven, eight years sober, and I've done some inventory, and I've done some stuff. And when they're escorting you off that field to get rid of you because you have become the problem, and nobody remembers what the initial problem was. Now I'm the problem. You know that you have to walk back, back out there sooner or later and apologize. And your head's hanging before you, the, as the anger is still in you, you're still motivated by what you did. But you know, oh, no, I did it again. On another occasion, not long after that, when I was coaching a bunch of nine-year-olds in a middle school, and we were on this little field and I parked my Harley because I'm a badass in the, in the, in the basketball court right off the field. And these kids were getting beat by about five or six to nothing at the half. And I gave my kids a, a, a lecture about personal pride. And you got to go out there and start knocking people over and stuff. You can't just let them crush you like this, you know? It's like Mr. Cleveland said we can hit people, right? And they go out there and get a couple more goals scored on them. And I just walked off and left him. I just walked off the field, got on my Harley, fired up, and burned rubber through the basketball courts as I exited this middle school. I mean, this is like hell's angels gone. Well, this is badass stuff here. And I roared down the street, and I ran out of gas. Now, when you're walking down the street with your helmet and your big leather jacket, it's hard to look cool. You know, I mean, things have not gone well. And uh, I get home because I'm not far from home. And I get home and I called my sponsor. To, to I don't know that I was confessing anything. I just needed to talk to somebody. And he said to me, Bill, it's children's sports. And I said to him, you don't understand. 
when, when you got to go back there and apologize, I had a guy, I had one of these soccer dads tell me one time, he says, Bill, why don't you just cut it out? We're tired of you hearing, hearing you say you're sorry. Why don't you stop doing it? You know, but that was a novel concept, you know. So I love that this is where life happens. Now we're in this program, right? We're talking about the steps and the steps is the spiritual process of us growing up because what we suffer from is emotional immaturity, right? We're immature. Isn't that it? Now we would like to think that we're kind of uniquely neurotic. Like we've got, I love it when people start talking about alcoholic thinking. Whenever you hear somebody talk about alcoholic thinking, they're making up an excuse for their immature bad behavior. The only alcoholic thinking I'm, I'm aware of is give me another drink. That's, that's some alcoholic thinking. Beyond that, we just haven't grown up. And I got here at 37 years old and I had the emotional development of a very disturbed 16 year old. One with a, he was not a mature beyond his years. He wasn't an honor student. Right. This is the one with the problem of authority that barely got out of high school. The one that had a lot of potential, but it never applied himself. That the one they talk about like that, that was me. Right. And I walked in at 37 years old and that's who I was. And I look like I'm grown up, but I am not. My sponsor said to me one time, Oh, did I hurt your feeling? Cause there's only one, right? There's not levels of emotional development. The switch is either on or off. Right. Uh, I've heard guys say in AA, you know, never tell an alcoholic what to do. We don't like to be told what to do. If you tell us what to do, we'll just do the exact opposite. Never tell an alcoholic what to do. Now, if you're 15 years old, that may be appropriate, maybe even cute. If you're 40, that's just stupid. Right. That's not a condition. (laughs) That's emotional immaturity. You just haven't grown up. And my experience here for in March, if I'm a good boy, it'll be 38 years. I got a good shot at making it. I'm feeling pretty confident in myself here, you know, one day at a time. When you get this many years, you just do it one year at a time. You can do it a little faster, you know. And, uh, you know, I look back on the almost four decades that I've been sober, and I can see the phases I've gone through. I mean, they're very clear and well-defined phases of growing up. Of stuff that, you know, at 20 years sober, there was some stuff that I did not know that I know now at 20 years sober. Now, at 20 years sober, I was a lot better off than I was when I was 10 years sober. But I can tell you at 14 years sober, I was cussing at cops that would pull me over for a speeding ticket on the side of the street. And I launched on this cop again and just, you know, yelled at him. You have no right to insert yourself into my life. And I just went off on him, all the bad words and everything, just screaming at him, you know, and I was incensed. I could, the rage that would come up in me, I suffered from rage most of my life. And he went back to his motorcycle to write the ticket or call in the troops or something. And I said to myself, I need to cut this out. This is not good. This needs to stop. And I got out of the truck that I was in to walk back to apologize to the guy. And he saw me come and he put his hand on his gun and I had a moment of clarity. You know, one of these days, one of these guys is going to shoot my ass. And then at the Alano Club, no one will be surprised. They said, oh, Bill, he had a problem with authority. You know, you know. I went back in the truck and he came up and he asked me what was wrong. And I apologized to him. I couldn't look at him. It hurt too much. It's like, because you've given up the war when you do this stuff. You're giving it up. 
Because I've been keeping score, you know. I'm keeping track of this, you know. I brag about it when I do it. I brag about it. I'm proud of it. You know, you can't push me around, you know, that bully kind of attitude. You know, but I apologized to him and I said, man, it's not your problem. It's my problem. I realize it's my problem. I should have never spoken to you that way. I'm really sorry. The apology confused him so deeply that he let me go. I think the apology disturbed him more than me yelling at him. He's like, he couldn't process it, but I've never done that since. I grew up a little bit that day, you know. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, you know, habits we have that we react habitually. We just, we've reacted that way for so long. Even when I don't feel it anymore, I continue to react that way because it's a habit. And I think that's what happened that day. I don't think the rage was really there. It's just a habit, you know, and I have to get over the habits. So I like that. This is where life happens. Now that we're sober, we're going to work these steps. Life's really going to happen and we're going to grow up now. I love what Judith said when she says, self doesn't remove self. Like me thinking that I should be a certain way doesn't seem to account for what a book says self-knowledge has availed us nothing. You know, I can't fix me. I can't change me with me. And what I'm supposed to talk about here is the 11th step. And what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the fact that you and I are not our thinking mind. And we think we are, but we're not. And there's a way you can really, you can, you can do that. You can see that. You can experience that consciousness within that's able to watch the egoic thinking mind operate. Right. And we'll talk about that, how that happens. Um, Pat O talked about making amends to his father and he wasn't willing to do it. How many times have we heard that? How many people on this Zoom have experienced that? I'm not going to do that one. I'm not going to do that one. And that's the one that hangs on, right? That's the one that hangs you up. Then you finally do it and you wonder to yourself, if you've actually done it, why did I wait so long? What was I holding on to? You know, that was really sweet listening to him. I knew his mother. And clearly, and many of us, I know Ralph did, and there's probably some others here that have been down to that Laguna Beach meeting and how proud she was to sit there with that boy when he came in. I was down there when he pretty early on and, and I'm sitting there, I'm looking at her and she just looked at me and smiled and nodded. I went, dude, he's not dead. <laughs> it's like, he made it. That was really something. And she was, she was something. She was really a badass. I loved her. And she was the 12 step queen and king of AA, man. She was, she was something else. It really touched me. And Candace, she's just too smart. You know, she just, it's too, I mean, the detail of her intellect is stunning. It's real too. I mean, you, you know, the, the truth of it, the way she expresses herself, it's a stream of consciousness, you know. We grow out of things she talked about. The behavior changes as we grow out of it. You have to stick around long enough for the effect to really happen. It takes a while because we have habits. The other thing, all these speakers that you heard today, it's hard for them, it's hard for us to talk about one step because they're all connected. They're all connected. And they mean different things as the years go by. 
You know, the classic one is six and seven. It's only two paragraphs in the book. You say the prayer, there's really nothing to do. You just say the dumb prayer and it's over, right? <laughs> you know, but where, where do you do six and seven? At six and seven? I think it happens later. I think what happens to us is that now that we're not medicated, we've done some other work, the character defects will come and visit us with alarming regularity. You know, and it happens. One through nine is about 10% of the program. It's not the work that people talk about. It is to some people. To me, that's not the work. One through nine is sober 101. It's the first semester. It's the work we have to do to develop a message with some depth and weight so that we can really begin the real work in AA as time goes by. 10, 11, and 12 is where we live. It's 90% of the program. Candace says it's all 12 steps, and I agree with her. But I really believe my experience is that 10, 11, and 12 incorporate all of them. This depends on how you express that. It, 10 is clearly the continuing inventory process. Yeah. You can do a big one, a short one, a date, you know, whatever you want to do, however you want to do it. Some people keep a journal. You know, I mean, I've never been disciplined enough to keep anything with any consistency, but I certainly review my day. I mean, I've gotten really used to it. How'd I do today? You know, what, the, what that 10th step thing, and it's really a lot of that's described in the 11th step. You can't really talk about 11 without talking about 10 and 11. I mean, and 12, really. I mean, it's all one category to me. It's a package deal, right? I mean, you can meditate your ass off and still drink. You know, it's like, I, I know lots of people that do that. You know, I'm from the 60s. We all did that. You know, we meditated and we smoked shit and shot stuff and drank stuff. You know, but we were we were spiritual. We weren't we weren't getting loaded. We were making a political statement, right? You know, we had motivation and all of this. The tenth step is about self awareness, as compared to self obsession. So is eleven. It's about self awareness. It's about being able to watch yourself move through life. Whenever I'm disturbed, it's always me. It's always me. It's always me. Doesn't mean you're innocent, but I have to own my own emotions and my own behavior. And the way I live, the way most of us live, the way I live is evidently what I believe is that things outside myself need to be different in order for me to be okay. There's something inherently wrong with the universe. Things are incorrect. And they need to be different. The reason I suffer and I'm angry is because of the incorrectness in the universe. Some things are good and some things are bad. And if you recognize this, there's no morality in nature. We add that. That's an intellectual concept, this concept of good and evil. And we believe we know what that is. And it changes from country to country and person to person. You know, and everything out in nature is eating everything else. And we make up fantasy lands so that because... Someday the lion will lay down with the lamb because it isn't fair that the lamb eat the lion. The lion eat the lamb. It's just not right. It shouldn't be. So we make up fantasy lands that someday that lion will lay down with the lamb. And I'll bet you if that happens, that lamb will be nervous for eternity because it's the nature of the lion to eat the lamb. And I just have trouble with that stuff. It should, it's not right. I talk to you incessantly about how if you were just a little bit different, the two of us would be a hell of a lot happier. And you insist upon living your own life, and it pisses me off at my core, right? 
I've lost complete control over the geopolitical situation in the world. Look at it. You know, it doesn't matter what side you're on. It's a mess. And nobody from Washington ever calls me and asks me what I think, what they think, what I think they should do. Right. Never. Not once. Nobody's ever called. They don't even send me an email unless they want money. Right. I'm powerless over all of this. I can't do, I can't handle any of it. I, I, I can't deal with it. In the 10th and 11th step, it talks about the maintenance of our spiritual condition, right? So evidently, one of the goals when I get sober is to get a spiritual condition, because I don't have one, so that I can then maintain it. So I got to get one first before I can maintain it. So a lot of people are doing prayer and meditation for their spiritual condition that they don't have, right? That's, I did that for a long time. I didn't have a spiritual condition. I'm yelling at the referee and the thing, you know, I'm screaming at cops on the side of the road. You know, I'm, is that spiritual condition? Doesn't look like it to me. That's a really good example of somebody that's out of control and he is in control of his own emotions and he's suffering from rage. I think with a spiritual condition, there's less of that going on, but I was working on it. I was doing stuff to develop the spiritual condition. The other thing it says is that we're going to rest on laurels. What's a laurel? A laurel is a past achievement. Well, I didn't have any of those. So I got to get some past achievements, some laurels, so I can rest on them and find out why that's not a good thing. So there's some work that needs to be done, right? I got to get a spiritual condition. I got to get some laurels so that I can kind of screw around with it and not do it right so I can find out what, what the problem is. But I don't even have the basics to do that yet. I have nothing. I'm a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is going to be a long road, long road. And I keep my clown suit in the closet right over here, and I dust it off every once in a while. I haven't had to put it on, but I probably will. Before the before it's over, I'm sure I'll put it back on. I've been wearing it a little bit less in the last decade or so, but it comes out. I'm human, right? I'm human. We like to call, we call people that aren't in Alcoholics Anonymous like earth people and normies, like there's something wrong with them, you know? It's, this, you and I are in the character defect center of the known universe, you know? We're the ones that are weird. That's why they, they created this program so we could have somewhere to go so we don't bother the rest of them, you know? Out there living their lives. So the speakers today had a hard time sticking with one step because it's really a conglomeration. It's a, it's a pathway. It's a spiritual path. It's a spiritual way. Like somebody, I can't remember who it was now, mentioned that there's some things you join up so you can get something. There's other things you join up. It's a way of life. This is a way of life. And the people I like hanging out with are those people that have really bought into the deal, you know? A lot of people that have maybe ignored their children a little bit too much. You know, they're not home often enough, you know, and that whole thing that we complain about. We try to find balance because we're obsessed with this thing. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a lot of fun in A because it's fun. I enjoy it. I like it. Is it inconvenient? All the time. It's always. I've just gotten used to being inconvenienced, you know. They wanted me. They made me fly to Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago. You ever been to Wisconsin? It's cold in Wisconsin. Why do they have those things in the winter? You know, they ice fish there and they do curling. It's really weird. And they're all dressed in Green Bay outfits. You know, I made fun of one guy in his Green Bay. He goes, I go to church like this, you know, 
geez, there are, those people are odd. I told them all, you know, you can move. You don't have to stay here. You know, these rumors that you hear about what happens down south aren't true. It's okay. It's safe. We're all right. You know, you can immigrate. I have a lot of fun in AA. So the first pillar of spiritual condition is powerlessness, right? Power, all the spiritual paths talk about that. They talk about that we're powerless. We are not running the show. Some people will tell you that you have to believe in a God to do AA. Well, I'm living proof that that's not true. You cannot have a God. All you need to know about God is it's not you, right? And over the years, over the 37 years, somebody else, well, I, 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 Pat talked about it, you know, you couldn't do the God thing. I couldn't do the God thing. It was stupid. I was embarrassed for you. I felt sorry for you. It's embarrassed. It's this very kind of pathetic and sad, this whole God thing. And I would argue with my sponsor about it. And sponsors say things like, I don't believe in the God you don't believe in either, which is really confusing, you know, because everybody knows what God you don't believe in. But evidently, he doesn't get that, you know. And I don't, but I'm a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was, he was patient with me, although I kept arguing about it. And one time he actually put his hand on my chest to stop me. Sometimes you have to just stop me, right? You know, physically stop, Bill, quiet. I, I need to talk to you now. And he said, we don't need you here. You need us. Resign from the debating society, you know, and very calmly. He didn't scream in my face. He just said, shut up, Bill, in kind of a nice way. You know, although he did tell me that you don't need me. I thought you needed me. I thought, you know. The second pillar of spiritual condition is I have to stop blaming other people and institutions for my problems. High school is over. This is part of the growing up process. And the way you open the door to that is the inventory. You make a list of your resentments, right? And we had a very great dissertation about that, about how you do that and how many columns there may or may not be. And what we're looking for is we're looking for my faults and mistakes. That is the focus of the inventory. And we go into it where I'm going to list all these people I hate. And that's, that's the kind of what you do. But the end result, when you come out the other end of that, when you do the fifth step, it's about my problems. You know, what are my faults and mistakes? I'm unforgiving. I retaliate. You know, I'm arrogant. I'm loud. I'm pushy. I'm, I'm, I'm pompous and. And I'm a bully, you know, and I'm a, I'm a classic bully. I pick on people that won't hit me. I don't pick on somebody my side that's big enough, you know, because you might smack me in the face, but I'll pick on a five foot, two or three foot woman like that. You know, I'll, I'll loom over you and scare you. I'm that kind of a bully. I'm the phony biker with the clip on earring. You know, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm full of shit. There's no other way to put it. And most of the time, I don't know this. It seems real. This is all looking backwards. You know, looking back, I was not real, but I look like it. I was dressed like it. I'm, I'm a scary, you know, and I carry a gun. And I'm from the mean streets of Palos Verdes, you know, where all the gangs are, you know. There's no gangs in Palos Verdes. Nobody's looking for me. I was a gang of one, right? But when I got here, I was full of rage and full of anger. And in that inventory, it was the beginning of the process of me stopping the blaming, stopping. And if you surround yourself with some relatively healthy people in AA, not all old timers, either people you're getting sober with and they're going through the process. We help each other stop the whining, stop the blaming. You know, nobody has to preach that. We can say, you know, Bill, no more. We don't want to hear about her. Like in my men's stag, the Hermosa Beach men's stag, if you walk in there and start complaining about your wife, 
We will clap till you stop. We won't let you talk like that. This, the first time that happened years ago, I was really impressed by that. I, that really impressed me. Like, man, they don't want to, I can't come in here and whine about my old lady, you know. That's not going to fly. And what we call it, some, some of us call it man school. It's woman school. It'll, AA will, will grow you up. If you don't run away from it, you will grow up in Alcoholics Anonymous. People in AA will teach you how to behave. And God knows I needed that. I did not behave well. The third pillar is nothing's personal. I go and I make amends, right? And what do you learn from the amends process? Nothing was ever personal. People are just doing what they do, and I happen to be in the blast radius of their behavior. You know, I think it was Candace that talked about, you know, it's not what was my part, right? We're not looking for that. It's not, it's not about that. It's about the fact the perpetrator is, does not feel your anger and your rage. You do. I do. It's about moving beyond that, you know. But nothing was personal. But some of those things seem incredibly personal. It looks like them. It sounds like them. It smells like them. But how much space are we going to allow them to take up in our consciousness forever? How much? Do I want to be free of that? And I hated my father. One thing Pat talked about, he wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to make amends, and I did. And I had a moment, I started crying, I couldn't stop. And I realized, I started looking at him differently after that. And we changed our relationship. And 10 years after I made amends to him, he made amends to me. When I wasn't looking for it, I didn't need it. That's when it happened, when the relationship got safe. Thank God I didn't miss that. But I had to go first. It had to be me. You know, and it, and it worked and I got rid. I don't no longer have that resentment. It changed me as a person. So when those first three things come together, when we're coming upon the 10 and 11 step, right? When those first three things come together, I am powerless and I'm starting to, it's starting to become more than drugs and alcohol. I think it's everything. And I'm beginning to get a glimpse of that, that I am not in control. I am not in power. And if I really get how powerless I am, acceptance just happens. It's an offshoot of giving up the power, right, that I don't have anyway. So when that's combined with the fact that I can't blame anymore, I'm still doing it, but I don't feel good about it when I do it. I'm starting to get over it. This is not, if they have to change in order for me to be okay, that's never going to happen. There's no hope, and I'm beginning to glimpse that. And then I start seeing that nothing was ever personal. I heard a speaker say some years ago, my God, I was so wrong. And I had that experience my perception of the world was so wrong. The motivation I was applying to people and the story I was telling wasn't right. And I started to see that. There comes a time in this process, and it usually happens, the fourth pillar of spiritual condition is self-awareness as compared to self-obsession, right? When you stand there and you say, oh my God, it's me. It was never them. I think it's me. This is not a happy moment. Self-awareness without humor is depression, right? That's depression. I mean, the reason we feel bad, the reason we feel guilty is because we are, you know? Sometimes depression is the appropriate emotional response to the lot of our life when we arrive here. 
I mean, for a long time, I had a lot of regret about the 20 years I wasted of my life. But the truth about that is that some people never wake up. I woke up. It hasn't been that way since. But there's regret and there's remorse. There will come a time in all of our lives on this spiritual path where we are reduced to prayer and meditation. Nothing else will work. Not one more commitment, not sponsoring one more guy, speaking at the international convention. None of it will work. I will be reduced to prayer and meditation. doesn't matter what I believe or don't believe in God, nothing else. There, you come to a point where there's just nothing else left. So today when a guy says to me, when I say to him, are you ready to do the third step? And he says, no. I said, why not? He says, well, I have a problem with God. Well, I said, so do I. Let's pray. And then he says, well, I don't even believe in God. And I tell him, nobody really does. We're all just whistling in the dark, hoping for the best. What do you say we pray? Because I've run out of options, you know. It says here in this book, pray. Let's give it a shot, you know. At 20 years sober, that happened to me. By that time, though, you know, I'm praying, I'm meditating, not with any consistency. I'm in the meditation. I'm an old hippie from the 60s, so the Eastern thing was attractive. You know, a lot of the Eastern thing, there's not so much God in it. It's more of a way of life. And, and I'm reading the books, and I'm sitting with Baba Ram Das. And one time I was sitting with this pretty big-time Indian guru named Ramesh Balsekar, and uh, he had just given a talk, and me and my buddy Wayne were sitting in the back room with him. And I'm talking away like I do, and he says, he starts laughing at me because they laugh at us, you know. And I said, what are you laughing at? And he says, I just love you alcoholics and drug addicts. And I go, why is that? He says, well, the rest of them out there are trying to get awakened. You're just trying to figure out what the hell happened. You know, <laughs> and isn't that the rest of the journey? Like, what the hell happened? What am I doing here? You know, how did I end up here? This was never the plan. You know, something touched us, didn't it? So if you get hung up in what it is that touched us, now we have something we can argue and debate. Is the concept of what it might be, but you cannot ignore the experience. And in AA, we experience it here. I've experienced it. And then when you have the experience, it changes your attitude, and then you start labeling it with whatever makes you comfortable. One of the beauties of AA is that God is you understand God, you know, and it doesn't even have to be God. It can be anything, you know. All I really need to know in my life experience is I am not running the show and something touched me. It would behoove me to try to get closer, closer to whatever that is. This brings us to the 11th step. In a separate cocoon all by itself, I don't know that it does much. You combine it with the rest of what we're talking about. You combine it with getting out of self. I mean, literally getting out of self. AA is not about that much introspection. You know, Candace says you need a bath from the inside. Absolutely. You know how you bathe when you bathe the inside? You bathe out the self shit. You know, you know, I need the, if you ever catch yourself alone in a room thinking about your problems, get the hell out of the room. Nothing positive will ever come from that. You know, me thinking about me is never really a good thing. 
right? So I start meditating, you know, and I'm sitting with the gurus and I'm doing stuff and I'm having fun with them. I'm trying to sit cross-legged, doesn't work. My legs just won't go that way, which, and I see other people doing it, pisses me off, but I try, you know, but I'm sitting and I'm getting up early in the morning and I'm meditating. My little daughter is growing up with me. She sits and starts meditating. And I started chanting, you know, so she's chanting with me. One time she was in the car with her mother. She started chanting. She came home and says, what are you doing to our kids? You know, she's babbling this weird stuff. It's like, you know, so I'm having fun with it. I mean, you know, it's probably the greatest subject in the world. And I'm looking into it. I'm reading books and I'm really into Alan Watts. I love Alan Watts. I was going to get him tattooed on me, but I don't get tattoos anymore. So, I mean, I'm finding philosophy that rings with me. But there's no consistency. And at 20 years sober, I started getting sick. Six years ago this month, I had a liver transplant. I almost died at 30 years sober. It almost killed me. But I had, like, when I got sober, I had bad cirrhosis, like some of us do, you know. (laughs) And I had hepatitis C, and they didn't call it then back when I got sober. They called it non-A, non-B. And it started catching up with me, and I was pretty athletic. I was riding bicycles. I was changed my diet. I was in best shape of my life, actually. And I started getting sick, and I started losing all that. My life changed. And I ended up having a liver transplant. But at 20 years sober, it was getting serious, and I was on interferon and ribavirin. And it was it made you sick. It's like chemotherapy. And I'm, I needed some help. I needed spiritual help. And my sponsor, God bless him, is a hopeless God guy. And he will just tell me, are you praying and meditating? I mean, that's the answer. And I go, I need some real practical help, not just mindless platitudes. And he, and he yelled at me one time. He said, there is nothing else. You talk a good game. Go do it. You know? And, uh, and I started meditating with what I call intent. And I had an experience. I was leading this retreat in Hawaii. And I was a mess. I just emotionally and I was sick and, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to muscle through it. And between one of the sessions, I walked up on this little hillside in this beautiful little valley that we were in in Hawaii. And I sat on this little homemade shrine to the Virgin Mary on the side of this hillside, still there, you know, and, uh, and there was a old rickety bench sitting there. And I sat there on that bench and I looked across the valley and I closed my eyes and I just took two or three big deep breaths, try to get some oxygen to the brain. And what I do when I meditate is I just focus my mind on the breath going in and out of my nose. And the little ego doesn't like being in the present moment. There's nothing for it to do. It thinks it's me. And, but the way it operates is it it only operates in the future or in the past. So in a sense, it creates some drama. And the drama can be created from real events that it recreates. It keeps rethinking and creates a story around and it applies motivation to the players in the play or it projects into the future. And generally, generally, not always, but generally it's worrying about stuff that may happen in the future. Like if you're sick, you're going to die. You know, like when you're 75 years old, Bill, it's time to start worrying about death. You're in the last stages of your life. Let's start thinking about that. Get the hell out of the present moment because there's nothing wrong there. We need to worry about stuff that's going to happen. And you've got friends that are sick and that are dying and stuff. So focus on that. This life is dangerous. It's frightening. There's the illusion of security. There's no security. And you start thinking about that, right? And you go with it. And you seem it's part of the human experience. 
So on this day, I'm sitting on this bench and I'm just breathing and I'm focusing on my breath. And as the mind wanders away, I notice something else within me notices that it has wandered away. And I gently bring it back to the breath. This is absolute conclusive proof experientially that who I am is not my thinking mind. If it was, I couldn't catch it. I think this is stunning. I think this changes the entire game. I can finally stop working on myself. I'm just feeding the beast. It'll take any kind of attention it can get. I'm much better off when I'm thinking about you. I'm just a lot happier. And that's a practical thing. It's not an altruistic thing necessarily, although it is. But it, this actually works. When I'm focused on you, I'm just in a better state of mind, an emotional state. Well, on this particular day, I'm sitting on that bench and I opened my eyes and I looked across the valley and the wind blew through these beautiful wispy trees on the other side of the valley. And the wind was not blowing on me. I just visually saw it go through the trees like, like a hand raking through grass. And I just got it. I just, that's it. Well, what is it? Who cares? You know, I just got it. That's an experience. If you ask me to describe it or explain it, it's hard. But it just changed my whole perception. I've never forgotten that. It's an aha moment. The experiences I've had are aha moments. They're an understanding that transcends the intellect. The Dalai Lama talks about it. It's all is well. Then he pauses as you think about that. Then he repeats it again very slowly because we do not believe that. That all is well. And I believe that. I have trouble with it like most of us do, but I believe that's true. Things are just exactly as they are. And I somehow think they should be different, and then I'll be okay. And I suffer. That is the source of all the suffering in my life. I have a very deep, profound, loving relationship with my wife. I'm so glad I didn't miss out on a relationship of this level. I call it a level. We've been together 28 years. She's 32, 33 years sober. She's my partner. You know, we're in this, she nursed me when I almost died, took care of me when I wasn't behaving well. We've gone through some stuff together. And I have this passionate, loving relationship for this woman. And so what the egoic mind does with that, she has a heart condition and she's on some light medication to take care of her heart. And it just scares me to death. My little ego can't imagine living without her. So it comes up with her death and how that's going to feel and how tragic it's going to be. And I'm telling you, there's nothing wrong right now. If I make a fear list, that's at the top of my list. And I know it's not real. And I know it's just me worried about what's going to happen to me if she goes. That's all that is. It's very self-centered. Because what would happen to me? I'd survive. I've survived everything else. I imagine I'll survive that. But it hasn't happened. 
right? So it's going to draw me away from being in love. It's telling me, pull back, Bill, pull back. Don't open your heart all the way. You're going to get hurt. I don't think that's true. I think what you and I know is that you can't truly love until your heart's been broken. Isn't that what we've been talking about today? Some of the tragedies that have happened in, in our time sober, you know, because a real life happens right here. It all happens to us. How many of us here that have been sober a few years have gone to help a friend that lost a mate or lost a child or got sick and you want to go to the hospital and visit them to give them support? When I was, I was in the hospital for three months after that liver transplant and all of you showed up and said inappropriate stuff and made me laugh, you know? You come and mess with the nurses and bring them cookies and stuff. And, you know, you're only supposed to be three of you in the room and there's like 15 in there, you know, and nurses are pushing you because you're in the liver department. They know who you are. They not never once asked me who these people were. They've seen AA, but it's the liver department. It's Cedars, you know, they know. And what I felt in that is I felt you love me. You, I can feel the love that comes to me. But have you ever had the experience of feeling yourself resistant and kind of tell you it's not really real? It's kind of fabricated. You ever felt that when people are showing you attention and somewhere deep down inside, there's something that tells you that you don't deserve it. Somehow it's not real. I'm, I'm laying, I've been sober a long time, right? And I know these people. I know these, I know they love me and I can feel myself being resistant saying that it's not real. And it made me laugh a couple of times because it's, it's me looking at that egoic mind. It comes up with this stuff and it's not who I am. And what I've learned is I don't have to go where it wants to take me. That's where meditation really helps with that because you practice, you do it enough, do it. And I try to do it every day and I pretty much accomplish that, you know, and I've given myself permission not to be disciplined. Just do it every day. And if you get interrupted, well, evidently it wasn't supposed to last any longer than that. That's just the way my life is. Phone rings all the damn time, you know, and unlike Ralph, who never gets phone calls, you know, so, you know, <clears throat> when there's a sound, it feels like it's interrupting. You, you can realize that you're in the same space as the sound. It's in the same present moment as you. And there's no separation between you and the sound. I live in the city. There's sounds. I can meditate with sound, you know. And the more I do this, the present moment has a texture and a feel to it. When you're there, when your head and your butt are in the same place, which rarely happens in the human condition, if you're there often enough, you sense how that feels. And there's times where you can feel really connected to nature and everything around you. There's these little glimpses of the present moment, and that has a texture to it. So during the day when you're not there, you notice that, and you can return to it pretty much at will. That's the pause when agitated or doubtful. Like when you're standing in front of somebody and you say to yourself, am I going to say this to this person? <laughs> and sometimes you just go ahead and do it, you know, but then there's other times where no bill time for you to be quiet. It's their turn to be the center of attention. Right. I think that's the present moment. And I'm right here right now. Some guy calls me on the phone. I'm talking to him on the phone. Am I listening to what he's saying or am I playing a game on the computer? waiting for him to finish. You know, sometimes the latter is true. But on a good day, I'll catch myself doing that. I go, just listen, be right where you are. That's a meditation. Meditation to me is being in the present moment. 
I have a little ashram, we call it out by in the backyard where we smoke cigars and talk about God, right? That's where real AA really happens. And sometimes I'll go out there and just sit there like in a formal thing and, you know, just sit there and close my eyes, take two or three big deep breaths and get some oxygen to the brain, you know, and then just follow the breath and just be right there. All is well. All is well. Sometimes it's very blissful. But mostly all I'm looking for when I do that is peace. I just want to be at peace. That's all I'm looking for. I'm not looking for enlightenment. I just want to be at peace. And that happens pretty much every time, sometimes better than other times. But meditation is a big thing. The other thing, recently, within the last year, I've started praying out loud. And I don't do it every day, but I, I do it frequently now because it seems to hurt. There is something really good about ceremony. Um, and when I'll go out in the backyard usually and, and I'll just pray out loud, I, I talk to God. I talk to this thing that we call God, this thing that whatever's running, the power that's greater than me. And I can hear my voice, you know, please help here. Uh, let me, here's a, I have my guys write a third step prayer. And I wrote one. This is the kind of stuff that I say. This means something to me. Whenever we come up on the third step, I'll have a guy write out his own third step. You know, the wording was quite optional. And I've written several of them. And this one I wrote back in 2008. And I really like it. I think if I believe something, this would be it. And it says, Father, open my heart. This is what I'll say this kind of thing out loud in my ashram. Just It's hard to think about something else when you're talking. Because sometimes I'll mumble stuff in my head and I'm thinking about hot rods or something, you know. I mean, it's like my sincerity is very iffy. But this is, Father, open my heart. Help me to love fearlessly and without concern for consequences. Relieve me of the aspects of my nature that block me from being truly intimate with my fellows. Guide me down the path that leads to the oneness of all things. Open my eyes that I may see the beauty of what is, the tranquility in the moment, the peace and the acceptance of what is. Relieve me of the bondage of having to live my life. Help me to simply watch it unfold. I think that's really cool, you know. Um, that's what I'm looking for when I meditate. And when I pray, it's for that kind of thing. You know, it says don't pray for yourself. You know, you can easily see why that doesn't work. I think that's true, you know. You know, God, fix my liver. It's like... I don't think that works, you know. A better prayer is, God, help me not to be nasty to the nurses. They're the ones that are saving my life. That's a really good prayer, you know. Relieve me of the bondage of my fear. Because, you know, I'm a classic guy. I think I'm angry. I don't know. I'm just full of fear, and I cover it up with anger. And that's I'm classic. I mean, my first inventory, my fear list was like virtually nothing. The one I did at 10 years sober was much richer. You know, we get some awareness. It takes, I can't tell you the truth if I don't know what it is. I have to live through some things to be able to, that's why the, the process never ends because we change. I change. You know, the issues that I, like you hear people say, I have issues in areas where I never had areas before. That's really true. Life gets large. What happens to a lot of us is the life AA gives us pulls us away from AA. I've done a really good job of not letting that happen. Because my life has gotten very large, you know, and today I'm retired. So I can now I'm doing more. A matter of fact, I think I'm over sober. 
the Zoom thing, I'm doing way too much AA. I need to back off a little bit. You know, it's like I'm getting too spiritual. You ever getting too spiritual, you know, where you start floating up the stairs and stuff? The 12th step, the mechanism that's used to bring all, all this stuff that you've heard these people talk about today, wonderful conference, wonderful talk. I've had a great time sitting and listening, and I, my, my intention was not to do that. And I just got captured, great information. What they're all talking about is this experience that we've had, you know, and how things change over time. All my ego does, we, we even talk about it in the third person, don't we? We see my head is out to get me. Well, that's not true. It's not trying to hurt me. It needs me for transportation. It's just doing what it does. And if I can stand outside of it, I don't have to go where it wants to take me. But all these speakers this weekend, this today, are all talking about the fact I can't tell you the truth if I don't know what it is. And when I was five years sober, I didn't know what the truth was. When I was 10 years sober, I had a better inkling, but not really. And at 15 and at 20, the truth changes. My perception of things around me, my, my ability to be transparent today is much better now than it was when I was 20 years sober, you know, or 15 years sober, I was still caught up in the Bill C persona, you know, the whole idea. I mean, the first 10 years I was sober, I was trying to make a name for myself in an anonymous organization, you know. I mean, that's all I had to work with, you know. That's all I had was my ego to work. It served me well because I did the work. And what happened is I fell in love with you. The mechanism that's used to bring all this awareness that you've heard this today is sponsoring people, is working with others. You want to work on your character defects, sponsor people. You'll run into every one of them. You know, you want to get a larger perception of life, let all the weirdos in. Don't leave, let any of them out. Let them all in. And you came in. I let you into my life. You let me into your life. And it's never been the same. My wife upstairs here a while back, she says, do you screen these guys before you bring them over here? You know, because there's some very iffy characters, man. And you have changed my life. And even though I was motivated by self, I fell in love with you. And that got me out of self. I began to really worry about you and care about you. And I started praying for you. And I started meditating for you. It enhanced my 11th step because I'm worried about you. I have a dear friend up in Seattle, Mike Rain, that just had brain surgery yesterday. I love this man intensely. And I've been praying for him. To what? I have no idea. But I love Mike Rain. And I want him to survive. I hope he does. You know? But I want to be there for him. Because I care about you. I've fallen in love with you. I'll leave you with one final thought. You say here you got to give it away to keep it? No. You have to give it away to even get it. That's how you get it, is by giving it away. Thank you very much.